that's why I always begin my talks on MMT with a story about unemployment first, because I think you have to establish with the audience mm -hmm. that there is a problem to be addressed before you talk about the means of addressing it. Because in, and, and I blame it. I, I, this sells well. Um, it's not my really my main thing, to, but it, it sells well. I sell technological unemployment. I say, why did Walmart put in all those self-checkout lanes to lay some people up? You know, now, does that make Walmart bad? You know, and I'm talking in Texas, too, so I want to be uh, as conservative as I can be to my audience. Uh, well, no, Walmart's doing what they need to do, uh, you know, uh, to make money. So good for them. Uh, but what do we do with those people that were thrown out of work? Is there a reason why we automatically expect them to find a job somewhere else? No. Are they automatically lazy? Are they automatically yeah, less skilled? Yeah, that's right. That's right. The, 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 uh, you know, and, and so I always start my MMT talks, and I've done a bunch of these now, with a story about why we cannot expect the private sector. The pri in the private sector, labor is a cost to be minimized. And then I add, in case mm -hmm. someone thinks that guy's a damn socialist, uh, I add in, you know, and hey, that's what the private sector is supposed to do. That's how the private sector gives us stuff cheap. Uh, you know, fine, let them do that. But we can't depend on the private sector to create a job for everyone. And that's what the job program's about. Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today is part three of my three-part conversation with Texas Christian University economics professor, author, and cowboy economist, John Harvey. We continue our conversation about inflation from both the mainstream and post-Keynesian points of view, and also discuss the MMT-designed job guarantee. A full introduction can be found before part two, but for now, let's get right back to our conversation. But what I said early on, when there were some people saying, oh, there's going to be a lot of inflation uh, with this coronavirus, going to be reducing the supply of goods and services. And I said, well, the gas prices have dropped like a rock. Uh, so gas prices are, are factored into the CPI. That's going to swamp it. And it did until last month. Uh, and last month, the gas prices started coming back up. The food prices were already going up. So certainly we can have some inflation. But um, hyperinflation. Uh, and it, obviously, one of the problems here is there's no definition for that. Uh, well, heck, let me ask Google how it's going to define hyperinflation here real quick. Uh, sure. But let's see. I will type in here H-Y-P-E-R-I. <laughs> you know what I found first? Hyperinflation is never caused by printing money. Apparently, I typed that in there earlier. Huh. Go. All right. Let's see here. <laughs> Monetary inflation at a very high rate. 
so thanks a lot. There you go. Uh, and uh, so, so, I mean, but it, it, the, the point I seems mean, to be that if that if we have hyperinflation, we have bigger problems than the money is. Precisely. Not. Precisely. That is it. The money, the problem is not that the government, quote unquote, printed too, mu- too much money. There's something else going on. And, and no one's going to care about the money at that point because yes. it's going to be such a severe thing. That's okay, right. okay. It seems to me that the there's a lot of connection between loanable funds and and Say's law and Nehru and rational expectations and and even barter. I guess underneath it all is barter, the quantity theory of money and all these things, veil of money, um, and even uh, uh, what's it called, money illusion right. that workers don't have good. All, all of these things is basically seem to me like academic excuses to to preclude the idea of the federal government doing anything that if the federal government does anything it would not just be neutral it would be dramatically harmful it would upset the natural order of things um yeah i, I think that's right and i, I want to go back to uh, you know if someone asked an economist to study a horse they wouldn't go out and look at horses they would sit around and think to themselves what would i do if i were a horse and so you come up with these theories honestly i uh, to, to be very, um, uh, what's the opposite of complimentary? Uh, I guess uh, uh, <laughs> negative. <Insulting>. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, to be very negative, it strikes me that a, a lot of these economists have already got their conclusion before they started, and they are just filling in premises to maybe not on a conscious level, but filling in premises to allow them to come to that conclusion. For example, money illusion. Okay, this is a uh, you really shock people with this one. Um, Milton Friedman talks about the Great Depression being caused by the government. Uh, the government reduced the money supply. And then the fall in the money supply caused prices to go down. Now, here's where money illusion came in. The, the idea of money illusion is that workers don't really know what the actual purchasing power of their paycheck is until they've had a month or so to figure it out. You know, Whereas firms know pretty much right away. They've got an accounting department. They know what their costs and, and revenues are doing at any given time. So, We've got a fall in the money supply. This is not what happens anyway, but let's go with Friedman's story. A fall in the money supply, which leads to a fall in the prices. I'm the manager at the firm. I've got to pay less because prices have fallen. I'm going to pay less. My workers don't realize that this is not a real cut in wages, in purchasing power. It's only a you know dollar value cut because mm-hmm. after all, all, the prices have gone down. So you know if prices fell by 10% and they cut my wages by 10%, I'm no better or worse off than I was when I started. By the way, mm-hmm. notice there in this world, there's no such thing as a house payment. Uh, but, um, <laughs> you know, because those obviously don't change. But what happens in Friedman's model is that when the money supply goes down, the price level goes down, the wages go down and workers quit because they think they're getting paid less. So the Great Depression was a mass wave of people quitting. Now, Be- realizing think, that they were tricked. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, not yeah, Not realize. Not. Well, actually. Uh, they weren't tricked because the firm was being quite honest in paying less because they were getting less. But, they, but in, in, in Friedman's they view, that they, they were all in Friedman's view of the money illusion that, that that they all all of these people realized that they had been tricked by the money illusion and quit all at once. That's what Friedman, I believe you were saying. Oh, no, uh, saying. the money illusion causes them to believe they should quit because uh, it's like this, that that. Um, OK, uh, the firm's prices fell by 10 percent. So therefore, I'm going to cut your wages by, you know, let's say, presumably 10%. Well, that's really leaving you in the same spot you were before, because presumably everything you pay for is 10% cheaper now. So I'm paying you 10% less, but they quit 
because they're ignorant of the fact that the prices had fallen. Because it takes them a while uh, to realize, this is Freeman's theory. It takes but them businesses have perfect information, so yeah. they know all this. Yes, because they have a very few prices to track. I mean, there, there's some things to, to like about the theory other than all of it. Uh, <laughs> there's some individual pieces that make sense. For example, yeah, I can see why firms would be more aware of prices than consumers because they have an accounting department. You know, and, and even if I'm a small entrepreneur, man, I'm keeping a close eye on the prices I'm paying and the prices I'm getting. But the workers don't. And so, you know, it takes them a while to go to the grocery store, to go get another, you know, uh, uh, tank of gas and so forth. And so the workers all quit assuming that this cut in wages was a real cut in their purchasing power when it wasn't. So right. Friedman explains the Great Depression as people accidentally quitting their jobs. That is stupid. That, that's, wait, that, wait, wait, accidentally? Well, uh, I'm sorry, um, under false impressions. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. Yeah, they were under and, the impression. Yeah. And in the macroeconomics textbook, what what really struck me was that the cut a cut in real wages versus a cut in nominal wages, which I finally like have my head around what nominal oh, yeah. means. A cut in real wages is shared by everyone. A cut in nominal wages by definition means that only a subset of the population have it because it didn't affect prices. So it's relative. So they relatively are suddenly less wealthy than other people where a real cut is going basically yeah. going along with prices so that everybody shares in that cut. Yeah. Um, uh, so the money illusion uh, goes- uh, Jeff, let me interrupt you there and tell you, I, I should have finished it off. Um, so therefore Friedman's conclusion is that the government shouldn't screw with the money supply. So it was going, I, I was trying to link it back to what you were saying about government is evil. Um, and, and so the, uh, the idea that the government lowering the money supply therefore caused prices to fall, therefore caused wages to fall, therefore caused workers to accidentally, I'm oh, no, sorry, under false impressions, quit their jobs and cause the Great Depression. So what should we have done? Well, we shouldn't have lowered the money supply. The government should just set the money supply to certain, well, a certain rate of, rate of growth is what he said, and just leave it there. Uh, and, and just leave it alone. So no discretionary policy. So yeah, uh, you were you know giving a list of things that may lead to the conclusion that the government should stay out of it. And the one that doesn't on the surface of it hit you is that is the money illusion. And yet it too is yet another reason why the government should stay out of the economy. Okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's it. Yeah, no, no. Uh, so the money illusion is the idea that the workers don't have all the information and, and businesses do. And yet on the other side, there is a completely contradictory idea called, and I believe I have this right, although uh, there's so much information in my head, mm -hmm. I can't keep it all, keep track of it all. Uh, rational expectations. So ah, ra yeah. as I understand it, rational expectations is the idea that everyone has perfect information of everything currently and into the future so that any action taken by the government is immediately con not contradicted sabotaged by everybody which obviously everybody includes those workers who are under the money illusion so that really doesn't make it that's a contradiction that's that's dead so, right yeah that, that uh, is exactly i'm correct that it's a contradiction oh you're yeah you're well you're absolutely right about um as a matter of fact they attacked their own theory like that uh that when Friedman said what I just explained, people said, well, what about rational expectations? And so this, that, that led from, from monetarism, which was the Friedman's view, to new classical economics, uh, where they say, well, wait a minute, that's impossible because workers would be reading the newspaper and they would read that the, that, that the um, 
uh, Federal Reserve increased the money supply by 5%. So they would already take that into account, which is A, ridiculous, but B, um, so it, it, it makes your point that, well, wait a minute, money illusion is inconsistent with uh, rational expectations. And you're right. And that's why they changed it. And then the new theory was, they said that if and only if the government carries out policy in secret, will the workers be tricked? Like uh, a random generator or whatever. Yeah, yeah. That, that if the government does it, well, and, and this is kind of a, uh, uh, you know, if the government's doing it in secret, then it's a horrible government, right? So it's once again, painting the government is bad. If the government secretly changes the money supply and doesn't, you know, publish the statistics, therefore workers can be fooled. Therefore, we could get a decline in, uh, in employment or actually the reverse also happens. And that is a um, uh, too many people go to work thinking they're getting paid more than they really are. It's really silly, honestly. And that's what I was learning in class in grad school and thinking to myself, what the hell am I doing here? This, this is ridiculous. So which one is, I, I don't, this probably doesn't even make sense as a question, but uh, whatever, I'll give it a try. Which one is closer to the reality of, of like, how much information do people really have? Like rational expectation seems to be one extreme. Money illusion seems to be the other extreme. I guess it's just somewhere in the middle. There's really no answer to that. Yeah, I, I would say money illusion. I mean, you know, I, I, obviously that I wouldn't call that a reason for why there's unemployment, but I would say that, no, people struggle to figure out what's going on. Uh, and I think that's oh, a and very... actually this brings up animal spirits that or, or yeah, yeah, yeah animal spirits yeah I was I was just talking to Melanie about that my wife um, she she's such a, <laughs> I, she, I don't need to know <laughs> yeah. oh she pretends to oh yeah <laughs> nah, sadly it was economics uh, <laughs> well you actually you bring up uh, not you bring up that you're reminding me of a, a very funny moment in one of your videos yeah I love your cowboy economist it's just all serious 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 and then something completely ridiculous just shocking and one of them is just there's only 10 people left on the island my wife and nine workers can social security go bankrupt well the quick answer is no it's impossible for social security to go bankrupt and let me say that again it's impossible for social security to go bankrupt the concept doesn't even make any sense because the viability of Social Security has nothing to do with money. It has to do with resources. Uh, let me offer you an example that might serve to highlight the relevant issues. Let's say there's some kind of biological or nuclear or even extraterrestrial disaster and the only survivors were me, my wife, and eight of my farmhands. First off, my wife's going to be awfully popular. Second, let's say that the ten of us that are remaining here on the planet Earth decide to rebuild society and civilization and that the level of productivity we are able to achieve is such that one person is able to produce enough goods and services for one person. It means each and every day each one of us has to put in a full day's work just to allow each of us to survive another 24 hours. Well, how many of us can retire? Well, none of us, of course. No one can stop working because our level of productivity does not allow it. It doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, or in the case of my wife, how busy your social calendar would be. No one can stop working. Well, wait a minute. What if one day I'm out scrounging for supplies and I come across a Brinks armored car that had been unloading cash when the disaster hit? Back door wide open. Suddenly I have millions of dollars. Yay, I can retire now. Of course not. Because the ability of the working to support themselves plus some number of the non-working individuals, the young, the disabled, and so on, has nothing to do with money and everything to do with resources and productivity. I forgot I did that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. You know, I, used to, I, I was scripting those things out, which would take hours. And because I ha actually have a teleprompter. And here of late, I just haven't had time. I, the, the one I did on the review of Stephanie Kelton's book, I just, I wrote some things on the board so I could guide myself. But I just kind of had to wing it because I just haven't had time. It's been swamped. Um, but no, 
I was just explaining to Melanie today. Okay, I got an article rejected today. Uh, and I thought it's one of the best articles I've ever written. But I knew I was taking a chance by sending it to the Cambridge Journal of Economics. I've never had any luck there. Uh, and uh, on previous experiences, it's supposedly open to, to, to post-Keynesian institutionalist kind of stuff. But I always feel like they sent mine to a neoclassical referee. So it wasn't quite that bad this time around. Uh, but I, I, I was uh, like, well, wait a minute. That, that wasn't even what I was trying to say in the article. So, no, I didn't say that because, you know, so I, I, was, I was very annoyed this morning. Um, and then I, I revised it and then sent it off to the, J, to the JPKE, actually. Uh, but, um, oh, great. Now some anonymous referee is going to get the article. Now I know that it's, it's for me. Uh, <laughs> and, and we're not supposed to know that. But hmm. one of the things I was complaining about was the whole thing with animal spirits and how uh, one of the referees had said, that a situation can be more or less uncertain. That is not true if you're using Keynes's concept of uncertainty. Wait, wait, wait. Who said that is not true? You did in response to I, that? I did. I, the, the author or the referee said, well, and the situation could be more or less uncertain. And I won't go into what you know was in the – because I don't even remember what was in the paper that led the uh-huh. referee to say that. I was like, no, 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 that's not true. Uh, uncertainty in the Keynes sense of the word is binary. Either it is or it isn't. And here, here's the situation. And this is where animal spirits comes in. Um, that Keynes argued that mainstream economics, which it still does, tries to frame too many decisions as if it was a game of roulette or I don't know if people have ever played Yahtzee, you know, where you're rolling the five dice. Um, that there are predictable underlying probabilities. And so that when you are, okay, let, let's take rolling two dice. Uh, uh, you roll two dice, the average number is seven that comes up, or the one that comes up most often. Uh, a, a two can only come up one way, a one and a one. A three can come up two ways, a one and a two or a two and a one. And a seven is the most common outcome. Six out of the 36 possible outcomes is a seven. Therefore, if we know that, we should always, when forecasting the roll of two dice, we should always forecast seven. Mm-hmm. That's what rational expectation says, is that People who don't forecast seven are not rational, but nobody is not rational. They, they, they vary the argument here. Either no mm-hmm. one is not rational or people who are irrational, irrational, will be driven out of the market. So mm-hmm. all we're left with is these really rational people who always predict seven. And remember, again, how this is painting the private sector as doing everything right. Now, there can be external factors. There can be, you know, sometimes you're going to roll a 10, you know, so you're not going to be right every time. But on average entrepreneurs and workers and so forth are right. Okay, Keynes said, uh, and Keynes was a brilliant mathematician, and he doesn't have a degree in economics, which is probably why many of them are great economists, um, that uh, his field is really uh, mathematics and probability. And so he says people never have enough information to make an expected value calculation like you would do, you know, in, I don't know if it was algebra class or wherever, I guess statistics, uh, you know, what is the expected value of, of, you know, a 10% chance of earning, you know, $10 versus a 90% chance of earning zero? Well, it's $1, 10% times, times the $10. He said, you, you can, that never is true in real life. And so what fascinated him was, all right, so if we never have sufficient information in the real world, if the real world is uncertain, and that's where uncertainty comes in, by uncertain, he meant we don't have sufficient information to make that expected value calculation as in uh, the, um, I should always predict seven. Uh, and so you either do have that information or you don't. There is no- this, brings up your, this brings up your example of uh, uh, going into playing, paying $1,000 to get a better grade. 
And that was a much better example. In fact, I replaced my earlier example. And in the middle of this, I suddenly realized, oh, I use a new example now. Um, but yeah, that's, that's exactly what it is. Uh, and, and so, you know, in the real world, we never have sufficient information. So now if you're going to McDonald's uh, or, or let's say you're going to a, a place you've never eaten before, you don't have all the information. But honestly, the cost of making a bad choice there is pretty low and it's, a, it's easily repeatable. Uh, so you can go the next time, you know, you know not to get that. But when we're talking about the most critical decision in the private sector, which is physical investment, building new physical capacity, which is a really important part of driving the macro economy, both in the short run and the long run. He said, my God, this is a really long term, expensive, irreversible decision. Why would anybody undertake an investment decision under these circumstances? The answer is animal spirits, that we have a spontaneous urge to action rather than inaction. That at the end of the day, you, you balance the uh, factors you do have as well as you can. And you never are able to come. I, I remember I read this. I think it was Rod O'Donnell, a uh, post-Keynesian guy, said it this way. You're never able to build a conclusive argument. I can build a conclusive argument about rolling two dice. I can conclusively tell you that seven will be the most common outcome. But I can't build a conclusive argument about will John and Melanie Harvey, you know, make a lot of money out of starting up a West Virginia food restaurant, you know, that serves only roadkill or something like that. Uh, I don't know. Well, actually, I probably do know that probably wouldn't make any money. But um, I, I don't know if that would or not. But here's what happens. Oh, what the hell? I think I can do it. Yeah, I think it's going to work out for me, which, of course, is a really nice thing about us homo sapiens. You know, we're not like Eeyore, uh, where Eeyore's like, oh, no, you know, I'll never find a mate. And so Eeyore doesn't mate and Eeyore's line dies off. But we all figure, you know, no, it's going to work for us. So the, the, the animal spirits is the idea that even in the absence of complete certainty, which is always the case, we will still be induced sometimes because this also creates a situation where panic is possible. Whereas panic is not possible rolling the two dice for the seven. You, you do not, let's say you, let's say you roll the two dice, you get a 10. You're not suddenly re, you're not suddenly questioning the underlying probabilities. No, there's no need for animal spirits in that situation. Yeah, there's not, there's not. And there, there's no panic there. Whereas in the real world, there's panic. Oh my God, I thought this was a good idea. It's not working out. Let's get the hell out, you know, while we mm -hmm. can. But anyway, mm -hmm. that, 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 that's a, as quick as I can. And, and I, I wish I had started differently because my example with the, Paying the thousand dollars to raise your grade is a better example. But anyway. well, just just to so so just to be clear, some of those you can go and if you fail a class which costs three thousand dollars, you can go and roll a dice. And but the condition is is that some of those dice are in boxes and you can't know how many sides that they right, have. Right, right. So that's right. the information you don't have. But people still some go forward and so on. That's right. Um, uh, okay, so I don't remember what specifically in there you reminded me of this, but the the history gentleman, you know, it says that. It's so fragile, it's so volatile that if you create money, it'll cause inflation to such an extent that the people will rise up and bring down the state so the state theory of money doesn't even apply. And then we, then that reminds me of critiques that I get with the job guarantee of, oh, oh, hold on, before we even consider this, how valuable are these jobs going to be? Because if these jobs aren't valuable, then that would be even more harmful than having no job guarantee. <laughs> and same thing and same thing with the. Uh, Corruption. Well, what about corruption? Because if we do a job guarantee and then there's corruption, then that could sabotage the entire, you know, make it even worse than, and I, and I came up with a vague response to it. And actually, actually, I'm talking to Matt Forstatter next week, which I'm very excited about. So we're going to go much more into the job guarantee. But what, what a vague response to that seems to be is 
first of all, as long as the corruption or the potential, the job not being valuable is equal to what we currently have in our private for-profit situation, if it's, if it's no worse than we currently have, then the fact that it will solve involuntary unemployment and all the horrible things associated to that, we should go forward, period. That's, that seems to me the vague situation. Yeah. But this idea of micro things turning out to be um, – can you address this concept of these micro things being turned to say that they're so severe that we shouldn't go forward because it would sabotage the entire you know, macroeconomic right. outlook? I really like the argument, and, and when I teach intermediate macro, um, the, I you know I, I include this on my chart of things about the job guarantee relative to how we do um, employment, you know, deficit spending, employment management. Now, um, that actually uh, the job guarantee is much less vulnerable to uh, you know first first point it's much it's much less vulnerable to political games than what we're doing right now is because you set a formula. And you say that, uh, mm. you know, a, a, a job and uh, let's see, Nebraska has X number of unemployed people. OK, you get X number of federal dollars. You get, uh, you know, the X number of people multiplied by whatever we set that number at. Now, we may have to have a different number for rural Nebraska than in Lincoln, Nebraska. But the government already calculates, you know, cost of living indices everywhere for when they're doing their per diem for their employees. So we're already doing that. Uh, and so it doesn't have to be the exact same number, but we've already got the formula. So we don't get a situation like we did after the financial crisis and with the, uh, what was it called, the American Recovery and Investment Act or whatever it was, the, the fiscal policy after that, where right. every governor is trying to figure, hey, how can I get a bigger slice of that? It doesn't work that way anymore. There is no bigger slice. You just get what the formula says. You can't game that. Now, you can game it back in Washington back when you set the rules. But once the rules are set, hey, that's what you get. Can you gain the statistics such as, uh, you know, how many are employed, unemployed are in your state? I mean, is that, you know, something to that end? To that yeah, effect? and of course, they're going to be doing that anyway with the other situation. So, so that's no different with both of them. Uh, when we had the, you know, the, the financial crisis and unemployment resulting from that, that would have applied equally there. So that is a wash, if you see what I'm saying. That, you know, yeah, you could. But they, there was a reason to do that anyway. This doesn't make that a reason to do it. Um, I guess it has a more direct uh, result. But, you know, again, unless you can show that there's somebody on the unemployment rolls, I mean, because uh, I guess that's the thing, too, here. Actually, actually, maybe not, because you're paying it to a person. The state's not getting the money. Uh, now, you're going to have uh, money to sustain the, the, the process. But, you know, I think one of the things I've read is that unemployment offices that are run by the state right now simply become employment offices. So, you know, we still have the same uh, infrastructure in place to carry out this program. And if the money is ultimately going to, you know, the, the family on the street uh, with a job program and not into a bucket of money in the state capital, then actually that's still kind of hard to, to screw with. There's always a possibility of um, uh, corruption. And, you know, Randy Ray points out in one of the pieces that I, I use in one of my classes that uh, there are reasons for being, um, what's the word, uh, transparent. And we need uh, a government that we can actually trust. But that's a different problem. We're talking about the economics here. And, and I don't want to gloss over that problem. It's a huge problem in our country right now. But I don't know how to solve that one. That's not my area. Uh, I, I, I desperately think we need to solve it. Hopefully, some of this economics would contribute to solving it. But 
I can't, you know, I can say that the, the problems that would result from this are no doubt more related to uh, the divisive nature of our politics right now uh, than anything to do with the job program itself. And even if that's the case, it seems to me that yeah. it doesn't doesn't change the fact that it would still have you know the benefits that it has. Right. And I think right. I, th I think that implementing the job guarantee would, by definition, make people more powerful, and therefore they would be able to yes. impose or demand that transparency. Right. And more. I think it's a I think it's it's something that you could sell to both sides of the uh, political spectrum. Both sides, you know, that, that that's clearly. Progressives would be in favor of it, but you could also tell conservatives. Remember, the, like I was just saying about that guy that wanted to interview me that, that said that, um, well, I can just hear the phone calls now, paying someone to do nothing. Well, that's not paying someone to do nothing. That's paying somebody to – there was a tornado in Oklahoma a couple of years ago that hit a grade school and killed a bunch of little kids. Oof. And I got to thinking, what if we – here's another jobs program project. Dig a hole in the back of every grade school and put a tornado shelter in. There is no profit in that whatsoever. So the private sector is never going to do it, but there is such social benefit. Uh, and so, you know, there, there are so many things that we could be doing. Let's say if we, well, my God, climate change will keep us busy for the next century. Just addressing that with a job program. Whether we like it or not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, so one way, when we run out of social problems, we can worry about it then. But uh, no, I, I, I totally agree that the job program seems... <sighs> Just so obviously simple, straightforward. Um, and, and now I'll tell you one of the reasons why I don't think it's accepted is that people still have in the back of their head, and, and uh, especially in the mainstream of economics, but that the market system does create enough jobs for everyone. Hmm. And if you think, yeah, if charity, you, please bring charity into this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the thousand points of light, um, that'll take care of it. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, they, they think there are enough jobs for everyone. There's just those weird times like, you know, during the Great Depression, there wasn't. But otherwise, if you're not working, it's simply because you're lazy. So why on earth do we need a job program? What we need is people not to be lazy. So they, they blame the problem on the individual, not on the system. Uh, and that's why I always begin my talks on MMT with a story about unemployment first, because I think you have to establish with the audience mm -hmm. that there is a problem to be addressed before you talk about the means of addressing it. Because, and, and I blame it, I, I, this sells well. Um, it's not my really my main thing, to, but it, it sells well. I sell technological unemployment. I say, why did Walmart put in all those self-checkout lanes to lay some people up? You know, now does that make Walmart bad? You know, and I'm talking in Texas too, so I wanna be uh, as conservative as I can be to my audience. Uh, well, no, Walmart's doing what they need to do, uh, you know, uh, to make money, so good for them. Uh, but what do we do with those people that were thrown out of work? Is there a reason why we automatically expect them to find a job somewhere else? No. Are they automatically lazy? Are they automatically yeah, less skilled? Yeah, that's right. That's right. The, 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 yeah, uh, you know, and, and so I always start my MMT talks, and I've done a bunch of these now, with a story about why we cannot expect the private sector. The pri In the private sector, labor is a cost to be minimized. And then I add, in case hmm. someone thinks that guy's a damn socialist, uh, I add in you know, and hey, that's what the private sector is supposed to do. That's how the private sector gives us stuff cheap. Uh, you know, fine, let them do that. But we can't depend on the private sector to create a job for everyone. And that's what the job program's about. The problem is not that they do it. The problem is that we depend on them to do more than they should do. Uh, which group? 
the private the private sector oh, for profit oh, businesses. Yes. The problem is not that yeah. they do it. The problem is that we yes. give them way more what the, you know way more to do than they should do. Oh well, but that, that's right. We are expecting them to carry out a function that they aren't designed to carry out. Um, and so you know the private sector can do some stuff. I think fairly well. I, I'm not you know totally anti the private sector, uh, but um, it's sure isn't employment. That's not one of them. Or, right. or protecting us against climate change, right? The it's the problem is not that our this is what I wanted. This is what it reminded oh, me yeah. of. The problem is not that our election system is being hacked by Russians. <laughs> the problem is that we have an election system that can be hacked. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We have set up the system, and same with uh, I, I wrote a, a, an article on the uh, Paycheck Protection Program. The problem is not that big companies have come in and stolen all of these funds. The problem is that the PPP has been set up so that it can be stolen from. Yeah, it shouldn't That's be possible. Problem. You know, I'm shifting all these classes to online, right? And uh, th- this is why it's taking me so much time to prep my my fall classes because I do all in-class exams under non-COVID conditions. But uh, now it's going to have to be take-home exams. Now, there are different techniques. I don't know if you know about this already. To have like a camera on the student while they're taking the test. They're going to find a way around that. So I'm just, I'm starting with it's open book. Use your book, use your notes. Don't use another homo sapien. That's the only you know line I draw and I can't really enforce it. Although I did catch four people last semester doing that very thing. Uh, uh-huh. But but exactly, you make the rules to where it is difficult to abuse it in the first place. And, and don't expect no one to abuse it if you can, you know, get in there and get money for yourself for the PPP or whatever. And that's really institutionalism as well. You're, you're considering how things actually work, how people yes. actually work, how systems actually work and the internet and so on. Right. Um, okay. I have a, a, f- a final question and then you can, then you can go into the story that you were talking about yeah. one, that you wanted to say. Friedman and the monetarists had some prediction regarding unemployment and, and inflation, like in the 1968 or something like that. And then in the early 1970s, the OPEC oil crisis happened that somehow, as I, as I understand it, falsely validated that theory. And that somehow is how monetarism took over or something to that effect. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, if, uh, let's put it this way. For a long time, they were able to get a lot of empirical support for their argument in the sense that they were able to show that when the money supply went up, prices did indeed go up. Uh, and they, they even argued statistically that the money supply increase was happening first and then the prices were going up second. And here's the problem with that. And, and Paul Davidson and I think Sidney Weintraub, I can't remember the, the co-author, uh, they wrote a paper back when post-Keynesian stuff could actually be published in a mainstream journal for the Economic Journal, which is a big neoclassical journal in England, um, called Money as Cause and Effect. And what they explained there was, hey, here's how it really works, all right? Here's how it might look like that money supplies are going up first and then prices are going up. And you're right about this historical circumstances here, by the way. And so I'm going to use that as my example. Uh, I'm an entrepreneur and every month I go to the bank to borrow money to pay for my inputs because as Keynes said, production takes time. You've got to buy your inputs, go into debt, and then sell your output, pay off the debt, and then go into more debt for next month and so on. So I'm continually borrowing money as working capital uh, as an entrepreneur. 
Uh, and so, hey, all of a sudden, OPEC jacks up oil prices, all right? So the cost of all my inputs as an entrepreneur are going to go up. So I, when I go to the bank in November of 1973, I say I need to borrow, you know, 10% more money than I usually do. And the banker understands that this is a legitimate request. They increase, you know, uh, uh, my, my loan. Uh, the Fed accommodates so that the money is available. And I, I borrow 10% more. So Friedman and his cronies are like, oh, look, the money supply went up. Then a month later when I sell my output, I sell it at a higher price because all my inputs cost more money. Aha, a month later, the price went up. Well, but that's because the increase in the money supply was really uh, the firms borrowing more money to finance the higher costs. So the higher costs cause both the increase in the money supply, which happens when the bank extends a loan, uh, and the uh, higher prices. So even if we see this correlation with money going up first and then prices going up second, and, and it goes back to we're breaking down the process to think about what's really going on step by step, that doesn't mean that the money supply caused the higher prices. Because the story they were telling was, oh, well, the money supply went up, people had more money, they went out and spent it, caused prices to go up. It was the Middle East, you idiots. It was, <laughs> it was OPEC. It was the 73 Arab-Israeli war. Uh, and the fact that, that, that uh, Syria, especially Egypt, got very close to winning, we made sure they didn't, that finally made the OPEC countries decide, you know what, screw this. And they jacked up the prices, and that caused the inflation. Now, just as you said, though, after these oil prices increases um, went away in like the mid-80s, all of a sudden the theory just fell apart. They no longer got that correlation anymore because there wasn't that really strong single uh, causal factor, the increasing oil prices, that was causing the entrepreneur to both borrow more money and then jack up the price at the end because the costs were higher. But I believe, yeah, I believe right. it's true, but I believe it's true that that was taken advantage of oh, yes. so that the monetarists really did take hold for a good whatever 10 years, yes. like you sort of just said. Yeah, as a matter of fact, um, and, and they believe, I'm sure they believed it, uh, the Fed openly adopted a monetarist model in October of 1979. You can look back at the Federal Reserve Bulletin, and they said, you know, we're, we're adopting this monetarist approach. Uh, and of course, I was, let's see, in 1979, I was 18. Uh, but, you know, back then, that's when we had those historically high interest rates, like 20% uh, uh, for, you know, the, uh, borrowing to buy a house. And it was because the Fed did it. The Fed said, uh, how, well, if, if the money supply is causing the inflation, then we should cut back on the money supply. And so what they did was they no longer accommodated when banks wanted to borrow more money uh, it's in order to or, or sell treasury bills or whatever uh, in order to loan them to customers. Uh, and so we had a huge credit crunch, which caused the worst unemployment since the Great Depression. Thank you, monetarists. Uh, but, mm. yeah, that is exactly what happened. You know, it, it's what I'm what my major subject with Matt next week is going to be the the how the history of the deaf definition of full employment and the history mm -hmm. of the pursuit of full employment. And it's and what what triggered me to want to do this was like full employment has been redefined as, you know, the natural rate of unemployment. Yeah, so, or so they draw, yeah. Right. So they draw a fake finish line. <laughs> and then when they cross that finish line, this fake finish line, they cheer. But they yeah. sabotage you from going forward to the real finish line. But they yeah. also put obstacles in your path to even reach that natural one. They they make the True. the the road winding and whatever make and they and they propagandize you so you don't even know which direction to run in. Yeah. And then yeah. on top of that, they you don't even know what the word inflate people don't even know what the word inflation means. So yeah. it's just 
it's not just the idea it's the world around that idea yeah can be you can manipulate it to whatever you want like the price of money and so on um yeah okay i have one i do have one last thing but i think it's i think it's a much shorter one and then your story please the idea of loanable funds is and i gonna mix this up but just say it as best i can is that saving cost? You know, the more saving there is, then there's more to borrow, and that that causes. I guess saving causes investment. It's what it would be. Yeah. And, yeah. Go ahead. And, and then uh, the same thing is that Say's law is supply causes demand. Hmm. So what I, I believe, I know that the causal is that demand actually causes supply, and that the loanable funds is just junk. But I believe that it's true, and this is my question. I believe that it's true that to say that demand causes supply that's that's the accurate direction yeah. because loanable funds is is nonsense well there's a number of ways to defend say's law and that's one of them as a matter of fact that's exactly the one i use in class when in contending perspectives when i go over different schools of thought i, I say that the neoclassical school leans towards the idea that the only point of equilibrium is full employment and there's a number of ways to reach that point but one of them is uh the, the loanable funds theory and the idea is that the well, and, and uh, okay, well, let's do it this way. This is the way I do it in class. Uh, investment must be equal to saving in a world where we don't have gov- sort of an MMT sexual balances thing. Uh, in a way that if the only kinds of spending are consumption and investment, and the only things you can do with your income are consumption and saving, then since consumption is the same number because it's still consumption then investment and saving must be the same number. Uh, Because anytime somebody spends money, it's somebody else's income. So spending and income are the same number. So if the only kind of spending there is, is consumption spending or investment spending, because we're going to get rid of the government and and foreign trade. Uh, And if the only kind of things you can do with your income, there's going to be no government, so there's no taxes, are either consumption or savings, then since consumption and consumption cancel out, investment must be equal to savings. And nobody disagrees with that. That, that, that. That's not a point of contention. The point of contention is the, is the process by which they equate. And here's the best way to think about it. Say you start at full employment. So your particular I equals S. investment Actual equals, full employment. Uh, yeah. It, 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 let's say it's already at full employment. Okay. But then firms decide to lower investment. Uh-oh. Lowering spending away from that level that was giving us full employment. So now we're potentially going to fall below full employment. But. Okay. The fact that savings is now bigger than investment means that banks have extra money sitting in their vault and they want to get rid of it. So they lower interest rates. So mm-hmm. as they lower interest rates, that reinvigorates the investment. And also it, it, it causes for people to save less. It's like, oh, well, I'm just going to spend my money. If I'm only going to get 2% you know, uh, interest, I'm just going to spend it. So what happens with loanable funds to maintain full employment is that if ever there is a shortage of spending, you know, like, like if investment falls away from the full employment level, that means the way they set it up, that means there's money sitting in the vault that the bank, oh, I'm sorry, I, I skipped a step there. The savings is loaned out to the firms. That's how they invest. Uh, the only money that the firms can get to invest, firms don't, don't, don't earn their own, the, the, the firms pay out all of their uh, revenue as income to workers and, and capitalists. Uh, and so, when investment falls, it means that all of a sudden, me as a banker, heck, I've got you know uh, $10,000 of saving in the vault, but I'm only loaning out 9,000 of it as investment. I better lower the interest rate. 
which raises investment and lowers savings until those numbers are equal again. And you can show it on a, on a graph. It's, it's pretty simple stuff. But, but it'll, it'll basically, the economy will keep bouncing back to the full employment level over and over because the interest rate adjusts to make sure that that's true. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, the, that's the way it works. And it's, it's the easiest way to explain And here's Keynes' counter story. Keynes' counter story is, okay, investment falls, that lowered my income. So rather than, and which means it lowered my savings. So rather than an interest rate falling and reinvigorating- Speaking as a business person? Pardon? It lowered my investment, so it lowered my income, lowered my savings. That's a, from a business person's point of view, the capitalist's point of view. No, no, it could be the workers. Because okay. if, yeah, if we're lowering investment, uh, for example, my university is still building a, uh, and it's a private school, so we're, we're in the private sector. They're building a big performance hall, which they probably regret doing now that COVID has hit. But um, so uh, they haven't stopped building, but let's say they did. There's all those construction workers out there that are suddenly out of work. Uh, hmm. So it's much more than the owners. It's, it actually, it's, it's probably hits the workers more. Um, Got it. And so what happens is that in Keynes's view, when investment falls, yes, investment ends up being equal to savings again, but only because savings falls right down with it because we've got less income. Uh, and so it's not this happy story where when investment falls, banks have extra money sitting in their vault, their loanable funds. Uh, and so in order to loan them out, they lower the interest rate, which reinvigorates investment and actually causes people to save less because they're not making as much off their savings. Keynes said, yeah, that'd be great. But hey, that's not the way interest rates work. B, firms don't really give a crap about interest rates, which actually there's been a lot of neoclassical research showing that. And C, yes, they stay equal, but in a really bad, crappy way, when investment falls, savings falls. Uh, anyway, that's, that, that, that's, the, that's the complicated story. Okay. No, no, no. I, and, and that brings up, you know, it, it is our job. Not as our job. It is a necessity for us to understand all of that stuff. And so I, you know, now, you know, I've done a lot of, I originally wanted to ask you a whole bunch of specific questions like ISLM and all this stuff. And so I, you know, now I have all these questions of wanting to understand that, but uh, we'll stop there. So, so you said you had. Let me add this to that, because I think this is a very important point. It took me years to figure this stuff out. I've been doing this for 30 years. I've been lecturing on it every semester. And, and the, the economist I am now versus the one I was in 1987, I was struggling back in 87. I was still trying to figure everything out. Uh, and then slowly but surely, things would fall into place. And I, don't, I think it was 20 years before I felt confident. Uh, and so if there are people out there struggling to put it all together, as you're talking about, please understand, too, that we did as well. Um, but it's just our job to do it all the time. So, you know, we get to focus on it. I get paid to sit and think about it, but hmm. it was a struggle. Uh, and I, you know, I, I didn't write any notes for this. I was just thinking about that earlier because like, I know how it works now. I, I can talk about it. But man, if this had been 10, 15 years ago, I would have had to write a bunch of notes, you know, uh, based on what we're going to talk about because I hadn't worked it all out yet. So, well, no, no, it, nobody, it, should get, yeah, nobody should get, um, uh, uh, not depressed, uh, frustrated. It just takes a while. Well, it's just by its very nature, especially being against mainstream thought, we have right. to learn mainstream and our own schools in order right. to be able. So we have to learn double, really. Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly right. Well, so you you said you had a, a story that you wanted to to yes, end, please, because it's a very MMT story. Uh, I love military history. In fact, I'm sitting in a room right now, surrounded by about three or four hundred different war games, which I haven't had time to play in a long time, uh, mm-hmm. and a bunch of models and so forth. And so I'm reading a story about Pat. All right. A book about Patton, and it's talking about when he was the commander at uh, after Operation Torch, when the uh, British and Americans landed in North Africa, 
1943. Uh, he was in command for a while, you know, after they had driven the Germans out of everywhere. Uh, well, and the French uh, as well, because there were the Vichy forces there. I'm sorry, I'm getting into too much detail. He was in command to Casablanca. <laughs> And he needed help unloading the ships that were coming in from the native uh, 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 Moroccans. And uh, Casablanca is in Morocco, right? Yes. I, I think so. All right. uh, I, I know there's a good movie about it, but I can't remember. Uh, so the um, which, by the way, I hope everyone watched yesterday on Bastille Day, that classic scene from Casablanca where uh, they sing uh, La Marseillaise and drown out all the bad Germans. So oh. anyway, Patton is trying to, to, to get help from the, the, the native people to unload the ships. So he gives them, you know, U.S. Army script, you know, the, the money they use. Like, what are we going to do with this? We couldn't care less. He then realizes I have to open the base door uh, or they don't care that, that this, this stuff is useless unless they think there's something they can do with it. Now, it's not taxes, uh, as we usually tell the story, you know, with, with, with uh, state money. But what he realized was, well, this money is useless to them unless there's something they think they can get with this that they can't get with anything else. Or they, they, this is the only thing they can use to shop at the U.S. Army base store where I can get, you know, Coca-Cola and whatever, things that they couldn't get locally. And I always thought, there you go. That's exactly what we're talking about. What gives the U.S. dollar its value? Well, what was it? Yesterday was our, was our tax day that they moved it to or today mm-hmm. um, that uh, the only thing they accept is the U.S. dollar. So if you want to know what, you know, ultimately creates the value of the dollar, uh, it's the only thing they accept in taxes. And because of that, it creates value for the rest of us that we can, you know, uh, trade it amongst ourselves. And Patton found out that you have to have an underlying reason to want to earn these American or th- this U.S. Army script. My wife gives out Harvey mm-hmm. bucks in class for, you know, good behavior and so forth. But you mm-hmm. get to spend those Harvey bucks on the uh, on the, uh, you know, the, the little drawer with all the toys and stuff like that. Or you can buy out of a homework assignment. But you can only use Harvey Bucks for that. So Harvey Bucks are, Bucks are highly valued, but only because she has created something where, yeah, but that's the only thing I accept. Anyway, I just <laughs> love that story with, with Pat. And he's like, hey, he accidentally did an MMT thing. He, he realized great. practically that he had to create demand for this currency or nobody really cared what it was. That's great. That's great. Um, okay. Wow. Uh, well, that was all over the place. And I think it had to be all over the place. So that, no, I, 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 I mean, I'm at, su- I'm at such a stage and you're obviously – communicating to people who are at you know relatively the same stage there's just so much there's just so much let alone the fact that there's two whole schools of thought that we have that you have to consider it from yeah um and and you know as an activist you know the more being on you know online and conversations with just the general public they are in those fantasy worlds and there's no way you can walk them to your reality unless you understand their reality and and your book contending perspectives your book um that's really what it's all about is to, is to be able to identify yeah. with the person right. that you're talking with. You need to understand where they're coming from as right. if they're actually a human being because yeah. they're not going to listen to you unless – If you, you can accept- speak their language, yeah, then uh, they're not going to be able to talk, to talk to you. So they're not going to respect what you have to say. But you know, I can have a very respectful conversation. And I have, I have some uh, Austrian friends, Austrian economics friends. Um, I think they're wrong ultimately. But um, but I can speak their language. Uh, and so I can get some respect from them for what I have to say, because I have given them the respect for, you know, hey, I learned what y'all have to say. I think some of it's actually kind of interesting. And, and right. there's some of it that's, that's interesting. Uh, I ultimately think that you're assuming that the economy comes to full employment. And so you're assuming away the biggest problem we've got. But, you know, likewise with policymakers, uh, you have to understand what language they've been speaking in order to dissuade them of that view and bring them around to another one, you know, to point out the flaws in that view. 
Mm-hmm. You actually, uh, after listening to your show with Contending Perspectives uh, Talk with MNT Podcast, um, I read the uh, Mises, Mises something, oh. Mises, the, the Austrian, uh, the Austrian, oh, the, the, guy who, the guy who debated Mosler years yeah. ago uh, on Austrian versus MNT, he wrote a review of Stephanie Kelton's book. And, oh, yeah. and I read it right after listening to your show with, with MNT Podcast about your book, about your book. And it just made me appreciate that article so much more. Like as I see it as a good faith article, like yeah. I don't like, there's a lot of articles that are just like really snide and, yep. and ad hominem. And they clearly are, are, you know, straw man after straw man after straw man. Right. Like Krugman and, and, uh, Rogan so many, Summer. I mean, there's more than not. Yeah. yeah there's more yeah. than not. I yeah. did not see this article that way. I saw him referring to actual, um, actual words from the book, actual yeah. papers from MMT. And so even though I'm not convinced at all, right. I saw it as, as in the vein of your, you know, reaching out to the other side of your book and so on. And, and I actually really appreciated that article and people thought I was nuts. I was like, no, no, here's what uh, I think is completely wrong and crazy. I just think it's, it's an effort to see MMT through yeah. the lens of his truth. Yeah. 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 And he wasn't, he wasn't setting himself up to attack. He was trying to understand. Uh, right. Right. Yeah, and he was very yeah. strong in saying that they're, I think they're wrong, but there was right. no like, you know, it's so stupid or there's no, you know, no real snide. Negativity That's what I really there. wanted to avoid with my book because I had read that in other books. Uh, and I was like, you know, our students really, you know, you, you write your Austrian chapter in order to attack Austrians. You think students are convinced by that? Um, right, right, right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's just like journalism. Honestly, it's like the kind of journalism. It's the kind of, it's the kind of, uh, uh, I did a little journalism a while ago with local politics and, and I was covering some pretty strong corruption, but I was not drawing the conclusions. I was just putting the information out there, right. which was very uncomfortable information and yeah. made it obvious to my readers of what was going on. And it's the same thing with, you know, like, you know, uh, uh, you just said a chapter being written with snide, whatever. And that's basically yeah. drawing the conclusions for your readers as opposed to what you endeavor to do. And what I endeavor to do when I talk with people online is you just try and put the information out there so that they can draw the conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. Hopefully there's enough reasonable people out there still that that can make a difference. Right. Right. All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, you've, you've given me a lot of time. Uh, this has been great. And I think it's going to turn Sure. Sure. My pleasure. My pleasure. I'm probably, I'm probably used up for doing work today. I may go downstairs and play a computer game, uh, fallout 76, which is a, post-apocalyptic world and in a way i kind of think of it as me preparing for what might come in the future so there you go might work out well well thank you very much jeff i appreciate your time and i appreciate all you folks are doing to get the word out um gosh who was i talking to just the other day i can't remember now but you know that that uh, and as i started off this whole conversation maybe that was before we started recording about how helpful and and how encouraging and how uh much it, it you know so uh, gives us, you know, those of us that are fighting the different fight, uh, like, thank goodness, someone's here helping us. And they, and they, they want to know what this stuff is about. And they, they, and they're doing a lot of the groundwork that we really can't do. And, and it's fantastic. So thank you very much. Well, that's great. That's great. And, and obviously, you know, you guys are our guiding lights. So that's, that's great. Um, I get, I get paid to do this. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. I, it's been a pleasure talking with you. I really have enjoyed Cowboy Economist and your talks on MMT podcast and now your chapter in your book. I look forward to your new version next month. Thank you. Um, so thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Jeff. 
All right, so anyway, back to story. 1975, energy prices rose by another 11%, which was, of course, on top of the previous 29 and 8% increases. Our misery was rising faster than President Trump could burn through a cabinet. Now, before the power of OPEC cartel finally dwindled, prices had again risen by 7, 9, 6, 25, 30, and 13. That brings us through 1981, and I want to remind you that these price increases are compounding on top of each other. And to give you an idea of the effect of that, had a gallon of gas been just $1 in 1973, by the end of 1981, it would have been $3.64. Now what caused that inflation? Did someone at the Fed leave the printer on overnight? Did Arthur Burns, the chair at the time, come in and see this big pile of money and exclaim, oh my God, imagine the inflation it's going to cause? Of course not. OPEC caused the inflation, pure and simple. The single most dramatic and impactful experience with inflation was no more caused by monetary policy than toads cause warts. Witches do that. But you knew in your gut already what caused the inflation, did you? Except them dang so-called experts told you otherwise. And that now, interestingly, interestingly, that said, while OPEC caused this inflation, the money supply did rise. I mean, think about this. Imagine. at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape-A-Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster for internet-based recordings. My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus, then transferring those timestamps to my Windows desktop. At that point, I crudely process the audio in Audacity and then implement the edits and do all the final processing in the Reaper Digital Audio Workstation. Activist MMT is hosted by Libsyn and the video teasers are created with the online headline app.